Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm April Wolf, recording in my home office with possibly some special guest appearances from my cat. She's been very quiet as of recently, so we'll see. She may have learned the ways of recording. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, or producer, and we talk in depth about one of their fave genre films, perhaps one that influenced their own work in some small way. Today, I'm very excited to have writer-director Terry Simundra here. Hi. Hi, April. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely excited. Uh, also excited about your new movie, which we're going to talk about uh, in your bio, which I'm going to read now. <laughs> um so Terry grew up between a small farming town in rural Missouri, a village in Punjab, India, and various places in California. After her father introduced her to classic film and even film processing in a makeshift darkroom, which is really a fun little detail, Terry was drawn to filmmaking. But in her own words, she fumbled through life making a lot of mistakes. Much like a lot of us. But seriously, she started pursuing in a film in her 30s when she got her MFA at SFSU. There, she learned experimental filmmaking techniques and still has her Bolex and a freezer full of short ends. Afterwards, she rooted down in Los Angeles, working the film festival world and what she counts as at least 30 random jobs to launch her career. But much of that changed when she was admitted to the Sundance Screenwriters Lab. Her short films, Ice Cream Mala, Kunjo, and A Short Tale of Juan, have screened in film festivals internationally. Her work has earned her an SF film Kenneth Rainin Screenwriting Fellowship and a spot in the Sundance Women in Film Finance Lab. She has written extensively with her creative partner David Walter Leck on the screenplays Woman on the Hill, Betamax, Western Interior Seaway, and the episodic series The Ballad of Puja and The Blood Below. She's also written a narrative adaptation of the D.A. Pennebaker and Chris Hedges documentary Town Bloody Hall and an adaptation of the one-woman play by actor-creator Fauza Mirza entitled Me, My Mom, and Sharmila. Terry is a National Geographic Grant recipient, a Princess Grace Award recipient, and an active member of the Writers Guild of America. But now, you're going to get the chance to see her feature debut as writer and director, Kali Kuli, on Netflix. And the film tells the chilling story of a 10-year-old girl who must courageously face the malevolence of a curse haunting her family's home and village. Um, you can check out the trailer and uh, uh, should be on Netflix when? Um, October 30th. October 30th. So... Yes. So while you are listening to this, it is now available on Netflix to watch. Terry, the movie that you chose to talk about today is Train to Busan. Can you give us a little explanation on why this is one of your fave genre films? Um, yes. Well, so, you know, when I watch a film, like I primarily watch it as an audience member. Um, but then, of course, I'm thinking about it as a filmmaker. I'm also always looking at film uh, screenwriting because I teach screenwriting. Um, but I watched this film again the other day. I've seen it many times and I just absolutely love this film. Like I, I just feel like it's a masterpiece. It's perfect. I chose it. Um, I think it's, you know, very timely right now. It, uh, you know, there's, there's a, a zombie apocalypse happening and, um, Throughout the the course of the film, you know, it starts with this environmental disaster that's man-made. There is this deer that's hit. Um, and, you know, the person who hits it, you know, just says, like, wow, this is going to be a shit day. Drives off. Nobody sees it. But on camera, we see this deer that becomes a zombie. And I felt like it was very symbolic for what's happening right now. Also, it's, you know, an apocalyptic film. And times feel apocalyptic. Um, I'm also, you know, super inspired by it. And um, 
kind of uh, loosely developing a zombie thing. <laughs> so there's a number of reasons. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I do agree. I think it is a very kind of timely thing, even though it, was, it came out in 2016. And we're going to talk a lot about that um, and Yan Sung Ho's uh, spe- specificity of um, wanting to uh, portray the incompetence of the Korean government at that time, which we now know is quite different. A lot of things have changed. But Uh, For those of you who haven't seen Train to Busan, today's episode will give you some spoilers, but that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch. My motto is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching. Still, if you would like to pause and watch Train to Busan first, this is your shot. And now that you're back, let me introduce Train to Busan with a quick synopsis. Written and directed by Yan Sang-ho for a release in 2016, Train to Busan opens to Seok Woo, a narcissistic hedge fund manager, hanging with his daughter Suan, who says she wants to spend her birthday with her mother. He is not the best dad, so he agrees. They get on the train at Seoul Station and hodgepodge, with a hodgepodge of others, including nice guy Sang-hwa and his pregnant wife Seong Kyung, uh, Young Guk and his girlfriend Jin Hee, an entire high school baseball team, which is fantastic use of characters, elderly sisters In Gil and Jong Il, a cowardly businessman Yeon Suk, and a homeless man we don't quite meet yet. A lady gets on the train, though, and quickly transforms into a zombie, killing a bunch of folks in the train car. Seokwu finds out some secret information that might allow him and his daughter to get to safety, but also this shit is spreading fast. This main group gets to another car and locks the zombies out. The train gets to Daejeon Station and gets off because the army is supposed to help them there. But instead, the whole station is infected. A lot of big chase scenes, armies overtaken, everyone has to rush back to the train. One of the old women dies, unfortunately. And the survivors get separated on the train. The men get stuck trying to close a door, but a window breaks. The women hide from zombies in a train bathroom. The two remaining baseball players get infected and left behind. Then the conductor heads the train towards Busan, where it's said there is supposed to be a safe zone. You're just hoping. The men need to get to the women, so they gather makeshift defense weapons and battle the zombies through the train cars to get to them. Then they all head together to the front car, where survivors await. As they're sneaking through, the homeless man steps on a can, alerting the blind zombies to their existence, and Sang Hua gets infected. Oh god, that's so, so sad. He's so beautiful. And he sacrifices himself so others can enter the car safe. Uh, the selfish Yeonsuk, however, forces the survivors to isolate away from them, fearing they're infected. But Ingil, disillusioned by the selfishness and missing her dead sister, allows the zombies to enter it all. You know, free for all. Go for it. Yeonsuk is the only one who survives that train car. And he, yet again, is an asshole because he uh, pushes the train conductor and Jin Hee into the zombies to save himself. Both are bit and infected. Yong Guk stays with Jin Hee, and of course, she kills him. It's a perfect ending to a love story. Then a flaming train derails them, and the survivors get trapped. The homeless man then sacrifices himself, and Seok Woo is able to save Suan and Seong Kyung. But when they hop aboard another working train car, an infected Yon Suk ugh, tries to escape with them and bites Seok Woo. Seok Woo teaches Seong Kyung and his daughter how to work the train, then jumps off before he can infect them. The two make it to a tunnel and walk through. Snipers are about to shoot them, but they hear Suan singing a song for her father and realize they are human, then rush them to safety. The end. Okay. There's a lot happening. I ended up actually having to skip a lot in that, you know. Uh, but 
Uh, something that I think we should cover is that Yun Sung-ho had a career as an animation director before this. This is his first live action film, which is incredible to think that someone was managing all these actors, all these effects, all this stuff at the same time. And it was still his first film. Um, but for him, it was kind of more about doing new things for himself. Um, but also about doing new things for Korean cinema. He said, quote, I didn't choose this film as a way of adapting my image or in order to show a new side of myself. Instead, I chose it because it's the first zombie blockbuster in Korea. And I think it's meaningful to try to new to try new things in cinema, end quote. Um, <clears throat> and I'd love to talk about that in terms of uh, the juggernaut of American cinema, where we feel like we can pretty much do anything uh, and, you know, audiences will will bite. And that's a nice pun for this movie. Um, and then international cinema, where it's a little bit riskier, it's a little bit chancier to do something, um, especially in genre. Um, and, you know, you have a non-English language movie that you're releasing on Netflix. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and the kind of um if you might be pigeonholed into doing certain things yeah i mean that's actually a very interesting question and um i think that's why i'm really drawn to korean genre and um i'm i'm always searching you know like i love medido i love or do um i you know i i was just thinking about like other i'm always searching for like um, East African, um, South Asian, Asian filmmakers that are working in genre, especially women, because it's mm -hmm. incredibly rare. And um, it's not that the audiences don't want it. You know, I think for uh, my film in particular, it's really interesting because um, there's a very specific mindset as to or, or an understanding of what horror is. And the film is not in essence, um, you know, there's no slasher stuff. There's no guns. There's no chopping off of limbs, really. You know, there's just, there's, um, it's a, it's a surrealist, grounded, um, very dark fairy tale. It's a feminist film. So, you know, here, um, you know, I'm in LA right now. Uh, that's like, that, that it, it, it doesn't matter. But in India, it's like you're I felt like I was constantly having to uh, talk about the where the film fits and who it would mm -hmm. be for. I mean, the great thing about working with Netflix is we don't have to worry about box office and they're very open um, to kind of experimenting and playing around with things. And they've really supported me creatively. Um, and, you know, our producers have been great. And, I, you know, I'm working in a in a space where, you know, I'm I'm not in India right now. Sometimes I'm there. Sometimes I'm here. I love filmmaking from everywhere. I'm kind of drawing from a lot of different places. And yeah. I think um, I also but inter it's interesting because here I get very much pigeonholed into people thinking that I'm only making films about identity and kind of the immigrant experience. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think at this point, like things are starting to kind of catch up, like the culture's catching up because more people are working like that. But um, I don't, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see how the film is received. Yeah, and I think, you know, for, for this movie, for Train to Busan, they knew that they were looking for not just a Korean audience, but an international audience. Yeah. Um, like they were, I, I think that young 
Sung Ho was actually aware of that and wanting to kind of reach those, even though he needed to embed things very specifically in Korean life. Um, but, you know, like you were saying, like he he was hoping that this would be an extremely grounded movie um, that would allow for people in Korea who weren't necessarily into a zombie genre flick to to have an entryway. Um, so he said, quote, I referred to the films such as United 93 and Captain Phillips, both directed by Paul Greengrass rather than zombie movies. These films display incidents realistically in a limited space, since the characters in Train to Busan are fighting zombies in a limited space as well. I also wanted to add a bit of the mood portrayed in The Mist and The Road, end quote. And um, I just find that really fascinating, the, the, the things that he's taking from American cinema to bring to Korean cinema mm-hmm. and how he's using those techniques in there. I, I mean, like... It's it's very much like international filmmaking, yeah. I would say. I mean, when I was, you know, so uh, again, it's my um, my uh, screenwriting partner who happens to be my husband. Um, we wrote this together, and you know, I always my our references um, or inspirations. Um, I mean, so the film and the story is really personal to me. It's very much inspired by you know family history and kind of this amalgamation of different ghost stories that I was told as a kid along with other personal history. But as far as the filmmaking style, um, I really was not inspired by anything uh, coming out of Indian cinema or even previous Indian cinema. It's like the, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think the, the films that really inspired me were, you know, like the wailing tale of two sisters, even Jennifer Mm -hmm. Kent's work, Babadook. Um, and so as far as like when I was pitching it and my aesthetic and creative directing style materials, there was none of that um, traditional Indian stuff. However, the film is set in a rural village and it is so specifically Indian in its story and even in like the symbolism. But then as far as like the aesthetics and the, the filmmaking style, you know, I'm I'm uh, drawing from that uh, Korean and I guess some of like that more grounded horror of, of Jennifer and other people. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a certain kind of thing where, um, you know, when Yang Sung Ho was was going over what he needed to make this work, he was talking about, uh, you know, weighing the normal versus the extraordinary mm-hmm in the story too. And I think maybe you can kind of relate to that as well. He said, quote, placing action at the center and making a film that doesn't let you catch your breath are essential elements. To do so, explanations of the characters should be lessened. Also, as the zombies attacking KTX in, uh, is an extraordinary setting. I had to make the characters as normal as possible to compensate. The film also includes persistent conflicts between normal people caught in an extraordinary situation. So I tried to heighten this by having characters of all different ages, sexes, social statuses, and relationships. Seokwu is a fund manager, while Songhua is a macho husband of Seongkyung, uh, and soon to be mother, for instance. End quote. Um, and and I think that's just a really smart thing that I that I often see in in a lot of films. If there's going to be a lot of complex action and and um, a lot of uh, big ideas, then often you want to make things as simple as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting to hear him um, talk about that in like his intention of his audiences, because first of all, I'd never heard that. Second of all, the film feels so, 
I'm not Korean, but to me, it feels so rooted in a Korean style. It takes you through this massive spectrum of emotion where you're laughing one minute, you're on the seat of, you know, just like the whole time it's such a ride. And I wept in this, this film always makes me cry. There's like three points where I'm like, okay, here it comes. It is so Mm -hmm. heartbreaking. Um, And it has this, you know, farcical element to it. It's also, you know, deeply political. It's talking about class. It's about, you know, the breakdown of society. And, um, you know, I feel like I, that that's, I mean, it's not the exact same thing, but in the host, um, you know, I felt those things kingdom. I felt those things. I feel like, it, it's so to me as a a, a, a a lover of Korean film. I feel like it's very Korean. We're gonna take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk more Train to Busan and uh, you know a, a bunch of other stuff from Terry's life and career. We'll be right back. Hey, it's your host April Wolf, and if you're like me, you're working from home. And you know, it's it's a, it's a little bit of a change. Um, but you know, it's not all that bad. You know, working from home, you get to get a little bit closer to your family. Um, you get to develop new routines, maybe uh, cook a little bit more for yourself at home. And also, also most importantly, you get to develop a deeper, stranger relationship with your cat. Um, unfortunately, that also requires a deeper, grosser relationship with their litter box, but it doesn't have to be that way um, because there are companies, for instance, like Kitty Poo Club, which delivers an affordable, high-quality, recyclable litter box that's pre-filled with the litter of your choice. I know a lot of you guys are probably getting cats for the first time. Maybe you adopted a kitten because you needed a little friend. You know, the litter box can be overwhelming, but... You can get these and you don't have to worry about it. The boxes are leak-proof, eco-friendly, and have a fun design for every season. And when the month is up, just recycle the box and Kitty Poo Club will automatically deliver a new one to you. No changing use litter and no more cleaning the box. So, you know, it it makes things a little bit more tolerable at home. Um, And, you know, it's it's easy and it's a, it's a, they love the box too, you know, that it comes in. It's just like toys upon toys, you know, it's joy for everyone. And right now, Kitty Poo Club is offering you 20% off your first order when you set up auto ship by going to kittypooclub.com and entering the promo code switchblade. Just go to kittypooclub.com and enter promo code switchblade to get 20% off when you set up auto ship. Again, that's kittypooclub.com and don't forget to enter promo code switchblade at checkout. And you know, if you need uh, a testimonial, uh, chicken, what do you think of it? Well, I, I think that says it all. Listen, I'm a hotshot Hollywood movie producer. You have until I finish my glass of kombucha to pitch me your idea. Go. All right. It's called Who Shot Ya? A movie podcast that isn't just a bunch of straight white dudes. I'm Ify Whitey the new host of the show and a certified BBN. BBN? Buff black nerd. I'm Alonzo Duraldi, an elderly gay and legit film critic who wrote a book on Christmas movies. I'm Drea Clark, a loud white lady from Minnesota. Each week, we talk about a new movie in theaters and all the important issues going on in the film It's like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner meets Cruising. And if it helps seal the deal, I can flex my muscles while we record each episode. I'm sorry, this is a podcast? I'm a movie producer. How did you get in here? Iffy, quick, start flexing. Bicep, lats, chest. Who shot you? Dropping every Friday on MaximumFun.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome 
Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Terry Samundra, and we're talking Train to Busan. Um, earlier in our conversation, you had talked about how your film has um, definitely been molded from stories that you heard when you were growing up and, and just kind of like the general milieu of, of, of things in your own personal experiences. And I wanted to talk about, um, uh, you know, uh, Yun Sung Ho's uh, personal experiences that led him to write Train to Busan and also the animated film um, Soul Station, um, which he did, uh, which is uh, closely linked. He said, quote, the story of Train to Busan originally originates from Soul Station, an animated film. Soul Station depicts Soul infested with zombies. While thinking of these zombies, I wondered what would happen if one of the zombies hopped the train bound for Busan, which became the inspiration for the live action film. The motif of the animated film is the homeless always residing in Seoul Station. They live quite a different life from us, but we usually take them for granted as a part of the station. So I asked myself whether people would easily notice the difference if a homeless person with only half a face left roamed around the station, end quote. Um, and I, I think that that's, uh, I mean, Obviously, he's drawing from kind of uh, social issues, things that he's uh, very attuned to that perhaps people um, forget about. And I think that's one of my favorite things that genre filmmakers can do is they can like look at something like whether it's a social ill or just something that we take for granted and say, well, what if, you know, like that kind of impetus. Does that resonate for you at all? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I, I think that that is... Um the heart of my storytelling, you know, I don't intend to, like, I mean, I could have made um, the social issue of what I'm dealing with. I could have made a documentary pretty easily. Um, but I find it so liberating to work in film uh, in, in genre because it just allows a space to, you know, dream and play with um, like, I, I was like, okay, what would it be like, to have somebody liberate themselves from this generational trauma and past. And I guess, you know, in a sense, it's like I'm probably channeling myself as character or say somebody in my family, like one of the women in my family as character or, or, yeah. or a girl from my village. Um, but, you know, um, in the story, you find out who the actual monsters are and you're dealing with, you know, you're dealing with this kind of um, poison that's deeply embedded in, um, in my uh, culture in particular. And, um, you know, I kept it pretty specific and nuanced, which I think makes it actually more universal. And I also left like the ending is quite, open open-ended and it's interesting because in train to busan although it's like wall-to-wall -wall action you're so mm -hmm. deeply invested as an audience member and for me i'm constantly like putting myself in the shoes of those characters i, I think it's really interesting in the beginning you called um the dad to be the good guy i call him good dad like that is who he is to me as a character i'm like oh good guy good dad good oh shit good dad <laughs> good dad like sacrificed himself to the zombies you know what else i think is so interesting about the film there are no guns in that film there are no guns yeah. like the most violent weapon is baseball bat i mean it's just so fascinating to me that they made an entire zombie two-hour zombie film with no guns i love it i want to i want to get into something that, that that you had mentioned just now and that is like the like how we see the dad is he a good guy or bad guy but also how we see young sook who is 
the quote unquote bad guy of this. Like, you know, whenever I talk to someone uh, about Train to Busan, we're always talking about like that guy who's just like going to try to get on the on the train, even though he knows he's infected, you know. Um, but Yun Sung Ho said, I wanted to show that trivial incidents, luck, coincidence, among others, change people from good to bad or vice versa. There is no entirely good or bad person. Through such a setting, I hoped it would give a portrait of today's society. Also, it was important to feature situations that audiences could understand, such as the opposing actions of Seok Woo and Seong Hwa, um, confronting zombies to save others, while Yong Suk... Um, jeopardizes others to save only himself. Actually, I wanted to see that Seokwu and Songwa are not some doing some heroic deed, but are just trying to save their families and friends. Young Suk, on the other hand, it isn't evil. He's just afraid to die while saving everybody, end quote. Um, and I think that that's something like when I read that, I felt bad that I <laughs> said that Young Suk <laughs> was the bad guy, you know, because he's just like the businessman who's just like, you, you know, you need to quarantine or like he's just he's like in it for himself. But also, um, you know, we we pass these judgments on characters, you know, in these situations, but they're actually quite human. And I think that's an interesting place for him to come through, um, come from when he's characterizing, even if that's not exactly how audiences will see it. Totally. I mean, I think that every single person in the film has this really beautiful arc. Uh, I mean, the young girl, you know, she um, is kind of the moral compass um, throughout, but everybody has, I mean, like the, you know, um, sister who basically sees her sister on the other side of the glass, her, her sister's become a zombie and she decides to open up the door. I also think, you know, at the end, like, it's like you think of um, this business guy as this evil, selfish person the whole time. But when he's becoming a zombie and he doesn't even know that he's becoming a zombie, he starts asking for his mother. He says, I just want to go home. Take me to my mother. I'm so scared. And you're like, oh, mm -hmm. will you take this person apart and you get to the core of who they are it's just fear there's this you know yeah. it does this like beautiful stuff and also at that point there's only um four people left alive and those two men are kind of like i feel like they're parallels of each other and you can see um you could see, like, if I was to take this route, this is who I would become. He's basically, yeah. you know, like, if you want to use the metaphor of the train, like, that is his life's course. And his daughter is basically pulling him the other direction. Like, you are so selfish. Yeah. This is why people leave. This is you're so unaware of what's going on. And that is I mean, that's his lesson. And then, you know, there's that that shot where it's like, I think it's so interesting. Like, we don't even see him commit suicide. We just see the shadow. Like, that's what this horror film is. Even though like one minute before that, there was literally this like zombie bridge, which is so insane to me. I'm like, I don't even know how they shot that. Remember when those yep. like zombies are just like on top of each other and you're like, holy yep. shit, there's a zombie bridge going on. But um, the fact that we don't even see him commit suicide, we just see a shadow of him commit suicide. Is, I don't know. It's um, I thought it was a really interesting uh, creative choice of filmmaker. We're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we'll talk more Train to Busan and also Kali Kuhi and uh, a lot of other stuff. We'll be right back.
Hey, I'm Dan McCoy. I'm Stuart Wellington. And I'm Elliot Kalin. Together, we're The Flophouse. A podcast where we watch a bad movie and then talk about it. Movies like Space Hobos, Into the Outer Reaches of the Unknown and the Things That We Don't Know, the movie. And also, Who's That Grandma? Zazzle Zippers, Breakdown 2, and Backhanded Compliment. Elvis is a Policeman. Baby Crocodile and the Happy Twins. Leftover Potatoes? Station Wagon 3. Herbie Goes to Hell. New episodes available every other Saturday. Available at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye. Bye. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Terry Samundra, and we're talking Train to Busan. Um, I would like to talk about the ways that we find the things that might terrify us the most. Um, because Yun Sung-ho, um, when he was creating the lore of his zombies and kind of coming up with what would, you know, terrify him, he said, quote, when the humans change into zombies, they discard both human consciousness and rationality. That is the general outline. In their very last moment as a human, nobody knows what aspect of their personality will pop up. The setting is shown at the beginning of the film when the voice of Syoku's mother is heard on the phone. I wanted to make the audience afraid by showing how a generous mother can suddenly change into a monstrous zombie who swears and shouts. The fear and anxiety come from watching the disappearance of rationality. I remembered the fear I felt when watching A Good Lawyer's Wife from 2003. In that film, a father curses in front of his family while on the verge of dying from liver cancer. I was afraid that I could be such a person later when I might not be fully rational, end quote. So his greatest fear was just like, he was watching that movie in 2003 and was just like, holy shit, that is terrifying to me. You would lose rationality. You might alienate the ones that you love, even if you might, you know, like murder them. Like that might be the most painful thing is to, to see them change before your eyes. And, um, and, I, and I just like that he was kind of mining his own pain and the own kind of, um, in his own fears to try to reflect that on screen in something that could be so pulpy like a zombie movie. But uh, it is true, you know, like the mother swearing at her or shouting is just like, it is very terrifying. You're just like, I can't trust you. How, who are you? I thought I knew you. Um, also very uh, pertinent for today, I would say, in 2020, <laughs> you know? Yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, yes. The way that everybody shifts and changes and, oh my God, the film, like, you just become so easily a zombie. There is no time to transition. There's that one scene, which I just, oh my God, it was just so, it's so pulpy and kitschy and yet so endearing when, um, I'm forgetting her name now, but uh, the, the, the last remaining baseball player and um, the young. Oh, Jin Hee. Yes. And, um, yeah. Yes. And his, you know, the um, girlfriend, kind of you know rekindled their romance he stays back with her she's becoming a zombie and it's like so sad and the the camera's like back here behind them and then all of a sudden she turns and she bites him it's so interesting it's like he builds these like so intense sad scenes and then all of a sudden there'll just be like something super uh crazy and pulpy and you'll laugh and you're like oh my gosh like the emotions that it elicits just to me, it's very exciting. Um, I wanted to uh, get into the actual kind of zombies and the, the zombie movement. Something that I was just really interested in in this is 
there was quite a bit of choreography mm, for the zombies. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that was just really interesting. And um, there, the choreographer was a woman named Park Jae-in. Um, and she said, quote, zombie actors have gone through really hard time for training. They trained for two to three months with their stiff joints. He made an easy progress focusing more on groups, not on characters. In the film, zombies move fast while the others move in the dark, and some stand out in a mat in a mess. About 20 to 30 actors had been trained at a time in my studio, which is just as big as a train. I designed the movement in the studio room. Actors who played soldiers used to run on the mountains in The Tiger, a movie in 2015. I had benefited from the well-trained actors, end quote. Um, so they have one woman who's just like designing a studio that looks like a train and is just like, you, 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 here, you move this. And and it was just like a kind of free-for-all of just, can you imagine training for three months yeah. to be a zombie? You know, those, I, I watched it again the other night and it was like, those actors who played the zombies are so insanely phenomenal. And I was also mm-hmm. thinking about the choreography. I mean, there's a very specific style in the way that they move. And like, okay, that the, the, the first zombie that gets on the train, she's insane. She's so good. And she just like goes on and on and on. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, I have seen some like shitty zombie films and this is just like every single zombie is phenomenal. And, you know, there's even those scenes where it'll be like some really like dramatic thing happening, like in front of us and then behind, behind, like, you know, the, the, there'll be like a cart of like 30 zombies, like going bananas. And and that's just mm-hmm. like the background. It's like, yeah, I was thinking, I was like, who choreographed, who who did the choreography for this and mm-hmm. what was the training behind this? It's not just like, Hey, who wants to like get some extras together and like throw them in the scene. It's yeah. like, just, it's, it's a funny thing too. This, I mean, as a, as a fan of the whaling, you might be happy to know that Park Jae-in also did the choreography for the uh, possessed people in the whaling. Oh yeah. Um, speci- do you remember that guy in the hospital who's like contorting his body yes. and he like, it's, it's so she is a very, very experienced person in kind of creating these different body movements. And, and I think that that's a really fun and fascinating and very specific to detail. Like I'd love that he didn't cut corners. Yeah. He said, this is like, we're going to find a, a different way for these zombies to move. He took inspiration from Zack Snyder's um, Dawn of the Dead, however, mm-hmm. you know, the, the way that um, when zombies are early dead, they still have like a ton of muscle and so they can run. And then as they get kind of older as zombies, they like start decomposing. So yeah. he was he was stealing that from them, yeah. but went through a completely different school of thought for how they were going to move. Um, yeah. You know, when you were kind of making, when you were making Kali Kori, uh, Kuhi or any of the other ones, uh, short films, anything, do you feel like there were times where you could have just been really lazy and said, we'll do it how other people did it. And then you were like, no, I'm going to take the extra step and then do this a little bit uh, different. Um, yeah, there was no laziness in this film because I, so um, it takes place in this, you know, it's a fictitious village and uh we knew that we wanted you know Punjab is usually and India for the most time like if you know there's people coming into India making films they usually have this like orange yellow filter that's used for most uh you know developing countries even though India is such a wealthy country or you know in India specifically like Punjabi cinema is always like very colorful and bright um and in many ways you know, Punjab is like that, but I wanted a blue, cold, 
uh, world. And, uh, you know, we have, it's raining most of the time. I mean, in the script, it's raining even more, but we shot um, in the hottest time in Punjab and uh, it was 120 degrees most days. And Mm -hmm. um, half of our production uh, was night shoots and we were mostly working with kids in this remote rural village. There's like, you know, cows and cow dung and animals and blood and kids and it's just really insane and so um we just didn't even have a chance to be lazy we just it was like high energy adrenaline every single day um get it done or die yeah totally <laughs> and i mean these kids were so these kids were so amazing there's this one um there's this scene at the end where um baby character who we call baby is possessed and uh she basically attacks shivangi and takes a bite out of her arm and it's raining and it's nighttime and she's in the mud and like i remember in order to get her you know it's, it's a hard thing for a kid to do that and there was like five of us as we're shooting it, we're screaming at her, beast, beast, beast. It was like, get, like channel your inner beast. Um, but yeah, we... Instead of chug, you're like, yes. beast, beast, beast. I just don't... We could not... Um, we could not be lazy. You know, it's so sweet that so... Um, our, uh, our spot team in India, they're called spot boys, our spot team, which is basically like, you know, everybody that's... Um, you know, making food and snacks and tea and stuff. There's this chair, you know, they wanted the director to sit in this chair and they were so, they were so bothered and it became this joke because they, they, they were so bothered because I was like, I'm not going to sit in this chair. And they were just like, please sit in the director's chair. And I was like, I'm not going to sit in this director's chair. Like if I sit in this chair, I'm just going to be up for the next minute. Cause we were just like constantly, constantly moving and in action. Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, no, I, I, uh, we had no, we had no chance to be lazy. I mean, there were like what, you know, you're constantly making, uh, not compromises, but you're, you're, you're working with your environment. So, you know, if the rain would come or we, our rain machine wasn't working, like we had to work with some rain machines or, you know, somebody wasn't feeling well or whatever, we had to move things around. There was one scene that we had to, um, improvise and cut. And looking back, I'm really glad that we cut it. Uh, I mean, I don't know how it would have been with that scene. I really missed it. Mm-hmm. But now I'm like, no, I think it works so much better without that scene. So there's things like that, which at the time felt like we had to cut around. But um, but I, I, I don't think that um, I think that we were just constantly going. Um, I wanted to end uh, talking about endings. Um, because you mentioned a long time ago in this chat, uh, talking about you love incomplete endings. This has an incomplete ending, even if it does feel like it's wrapped up. Um, Yeon Sung-ho said, quote, I did not give a complete ending to the film, hoping the audiences might imagine their own ending. Also, the last survivors represent the next generation. Cartoonist Choi Gyosuk of all read the film script and said that the relationship between Seokwu and Suan raises a question. What can the present generation pass down to the future generation? 
Thus far, we've valued development, economic, societal, all that. However, development will someday end. Even today, we conceive that development itself is meaningless. Then what do we have to pass on to the future generation? I wish that very question and the ending can be delivered to the audiences, end quote. I thought that would resonate quite a bit with you. Um, but I think that, you know, he wants to make sure that he is designing the question that the audience is going to come away with. That's it. Final scene. Hopefully the audience thinks about this question. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that is, to me, what is so, um, that is a really profound uh, marker in the film. And I love storytellers and filmmakers that do not force feed you things. They do not force feed you how you should feel. And of course, you know, he's con this, the train to Busan is such a constructed film and you're constantly going on this like insane ride that in a sense, you would think that you were not bringing yourself to it. Like it feels like it's packed, but actually mm -hmm. there's a lot of, room to breathe and space to think and you're uh, and you know as I was watching it the other night I'm like oh I really am always constantly bringing myself to it and although he's he's constructing the question he's allowing me to answer it and to meet him halfway and yeah. I I um I hope to achieve that in my work I always want to build a space where you know, you don't treat your audience like they're stupid and you allow for them to um, bring themselves to it, to, to the story. And uh, I, I, you treat your audience like they're smart. And I think that, you know, it's like any good, it's, it's like any good fable, any good story, it sticks with you because it allows you to own it. Like the, the, the film and the story um, exists apart from the filmmaker. Like once you put it out in the world, it's like you give it away and what people do with it, they, they do with it. You can't control that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really love open-ended endings. And, and that's certainly what, um, what I did with, with Kali Guhi. It's a, it's a, it, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how people react to the end. And I definitely constructed a question. It was definitely a question and it was definitely, you know, having to do with um, the carrying on of the torch and the next generation. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm super curious to see how people will react because it's weird. It's a weird ending. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a good thing our, our listeners can, um, can tweet at you their thoughts and ask you what that Ooh, question is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so when you watch it on Netflix, you can definitely do that. I, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, Terry, and for talking about Train to Busan and your movie, Kali Kui. And Kali Kui is available again October 30th, anytime after that, on Netflix to stream. Um, and uh, anything else you need to plug? No, that's it. Watch the movie. That's the that's the that's the new baby that's coming out. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for coming yeah, on. Yeah, thanks for having me. That was fun. And thank you for listening to Switchblade Sisters. If you would like to tell us what you think of the show, you can tweet at us at SwitchbladePod or email us at SwitchbladeSisters at MaximumFun.org. And please check out our Facebook group too. That's Facebook.com slash groups slash SwitchbladeSisters. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. And this is a production of MaximumFun.org. Thank you.
MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned, audience supported.